The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. With that, you can have a finger in Revelation chapter 18, as we're going through the center, uh, the mid part of the book of Revelation, about a chapter at a time. Uh, before I get to Revela- Revelation 18, I want to read from two Old Testament books or short passages that lay the foundation for Revelation 18. Um, for those of you who haven't been with us on a regular basis, we've been going through Revelation about a paragraph at a time, sometimes a whole chapter at a time, 22 chapters. We are now getting near the end, chapter 18. And the reason we study Revelation is because it is inspired scripture like every other book in the Bible. And it is profitable for reproof, correction, training, and righteousness so that the man and woman of God may be thoroughly furnished and equipped for every good work. Also because it tells us how everything ends uh, in God's plan, in history and eternity. God wins. Amen. That's why Revelation is so exciting. It's uh, And it's also true. It is real. It is inspired. We study Revelation because the author in chapter 1, inspired by the Holy Spirit, said you would be blessed if you listen to Revelation, heed it and obey it. Do you want to be blessed? I do. I want to keep studying Revelation. Uh, and we're about to get to some really exciting stuff for the Christian in chapters 19 through 22. But we got to get through the tribulation first. Uh, and we're about to do that as we hit chapter 18 today. But before we do, I am the greatest. I mean, who used to say that? Who made that phrase famous? That was Muhammad Ali. Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali. Thought he floated like a butterfly. Thought he stung like a bee. So he said. But in the 60s, you know, he started winning and go on national television and, and de- you know, de- declare, I am the greatest. And he did it for 10 plus years of his career. And so it was actually uh, Muhammad Ali who, who dignified being pridefully arrogant about self and made it acceptable in our society, especially in the sports world. That's an expected cool thing to do now. That's why every boxing and fighter ever since Muhammad Ali, when they get interviewed, they just talk about how they're the greatest. And it's interesting when you watch athletes when they win something, I don't care who it is, be discerning and look for it. They win the Super Bowl, they win a championship, and they stick a microphone in front of their mouth. What do they say? Is all focus on self and how great they are? Or are they giving the glory to somebody else? Are they violating Scripture or honoring Scripture? Scripture is clear in the book of Proverbs. Let another man praise you and not your own lips. Proverbs chapter 3 also says that God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud. God hates the proud. He hates arrogance. He hates pride. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's in the book of Proverbs. And then in 1 Peter, Peter reiterates that. He quotes that verse to remind Christians. That's a priority in life. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In the book of James, does the same thing. Quotes that verse, reminding Christians, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. That is the Christian worldview. That is the Christian ethic. It flies in the face of the world and the Muhammad Ali's of the world who have eyes and fingers pointing at self. I am the greatest. No, you're not. God is. God is the greatest. And of all the sins that God despises, pride is right up there, if not at the top. Pride is a sin. God hates it. God must punish it. God has punished uh, the sin of pride all throughout history. And so when we get to Revelation 18, the theme in Revelation 18 is that God is pouring out His wrath on the city of Babylon. This is yet future. It's going to happen. It's over in the area of Iraq right now, just 50 miles below uh, the capital. 
or Baghdad, there's a city there that's historic Babylon. It's got half a million people that live there today. Uh, many people who've been in the wars there in Iraq in 1992 and the one recently have either had to travel through or fight in or live near uh, the ancient city of Babylon, which goes by a different name today. But it's a, a, a live city with people living, uh, thriving, and it actually God is setting it up to be the hub and the center of all world activity in the future. Babylon's day is not over. And all throughout history, Babylon has been headquarters uh, for world activity, mostly sinful world activity, starting with the Tower of Babel that we read last week in Genesis chapter 10 and 11, where that was the headquarters and the beginning of false religion in Nimrod there at Babylon over in Iraq by the Euphrates River. Very fertile, treasured ground and geography over there that the world's been fighting over for 6,000 years and still are and will more so in the future. So even from the days of Genesis 10 and 11 to the days of Nebuchadnezzar in 600 B.C. where he was the reigning emperor and dictator of the world, Nebuchadnezzar, for decades. And Babylon was his headquarters. And then you go 2,600 years in the days of Saddam Hussein in 1992 and the whole world literally was focused on Babylon or near it because that's where Saddam Hussein lived over and reigned declaring himself the dictator of the world and that he was going to usher in literally a millennium on earth because he was as great as Nebuchadnezzar incarnate, said Saddam Hussein. And the whole world literally was focused once again on this city called Babylon. And Saddam Hussein even had one of his massive palaces built there. It still stands there to this day. And just about every single brick has etched in it a praise to Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon the Great. And so in the future... Babylon is going to be the headquarters of a world empire that will be an emesis, an enemy of God. And that's what Revelation is talking about, 17 and 18. The demise, actually the rise and fall of the great world empire of Babylon that is yet to come. Before we get there, I, I want to direct your attention to a passage I don't think we've read since we've been going through Revelation. We've alluded to it, but in Daniel chapter 4, if you could look at that. I've said a few times that the book of Daniel is to the Old Testament what Revelation is to the New Testament. A lot of prophecy there in Daniel. Uh, after the minor, the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel chapter 4. So this takes place over in Babylon in Daniel's day, which for us is modern-day Iraq. And the king reigning at the time at the beginning of the book is Nebuchadnezzar. He was powerful, one of the most powerful kings, actually, that's ever ruled in history. He was quite arrogant, in love with self, and demanded that his people worship him, created an idol of himself that people should worship. And he got caught up in the sin of pride, and sin became blinding to Nebuchadnezzar, as it does. Pride is blinding to people. And God hates pride. And Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and... Daniel interpreted the dream, and it was a warning to Nebuchadnezzar that judgment from God was coming because of his pride. And so I want to read uh, a testimony from Nebuchadnezzar himself at the end of his life. Daniel chapter 4, starting at verse 28. And all this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. All this happened was Daniel just interpreted what this dream meant. Nebuchadnezzar, you are going down. That was the interpretation. Well, verse 29, well, 12 months later, a year later, after the interpretation... Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. He's out on his balcony. He's looking out over his vast domain that he has built and reigns 
over. Verse 30, And the king Nebuchadnezzar reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great? There's that phrase. He coined that term, Babylon the Great. That from that day forward, all throughout history, it was used to refer to Babylon. Babylon the Great. And that's what it says several times in the book of Revelation. Babylon the Great. It came from right here. Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. Notice all the personal pronouns of first person. I, 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 me, me, me. That's the height of arrogance and pride. So here he is looking over his vast kingdom, talking about how great he is. Verse 31, and all of a sudden, while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it has been declared. Sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be the beasts of the field. You're going to, you're going to be moved out of this palace and living with animals, wild beasts. You will be given grass to eat like cattle down on all fours, eating grass like an animal. This is literal, by the way. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his, oh, and seven periods of time will pass over you. That's seven years this is going to happen. You're going to be eating grass like a cow until you, until you recognize, see, this is the purpose. God is doing this. God is bringing Nebuchadnezzar to his knees to humble him, to teach him a lesson, to bring humility into his life until what? Until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. You aren't the king, God is. God is the sovereign of the universe. And it is the true God, the God of the universe, the creator who bestows it on whomever he wishes. Nebuchadnezzar didn't understand that. It's a lesson he's going to learn, though. Verse uh, 33, immediately, immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled immediately like that. And he was Nebuchadnezzar was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. So he was banished from his empire, banished from his palace, down on all fours, eating like a cow. He is insane, actually. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails, his fingernails, like bird's claws. He just looked this, like this grotesque animal. King Nebuchadnezzar. That went on for seven years, verse 34. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar. See, this is his personal testimony. This is amazing. This is the grace of God. At the end of that seven-year period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven. Finally, that grass got stale. And my reason returned to me. He was no longer insane. He got his marbles back. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. He learned the lesson. For His dominion. He's talking about God. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But He, God, does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, What hast thou done? At that time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me. He got to go back in the palace. He got a haircut. Splendor was restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt and honor the king of heaven for all his works and true uh, are true and his ways just. And he is able to humble those who walk in. Pride. Isn't this amazing? A lot of people hear about Nebuchadnezzar and knock him all the time and talk about how horrible he was. And they don't finish the story. Nebuchadnezzar got saved. That is the grace of God. So think of the most horrible, despicable dictator in the history of the universe who you think is beyond salvation in the grace of God, whether it was Adolf Hitler, Saddam Hussein, or 
uh, reigning tyrants of our day, it is possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ to penetrate their heart and heart and to save them, to bring them to repentance. It's possible. That's how powerful God can be. But sin is also powerful, and many say no one resists the grace of God. So uh, that was the foundational passage I want to read about Babylon. Babylon the Great. Now let's look at Babylon the Great of the future uh, in Revelation chapter 18. Just to set the context here in Revelation 18, 24 verses, broke it up into three kind of segments uh, just to help us breeze through it. Revelation 17, 18, and 19 actually go together as a unit. 17, 18, and 19 is actually an explanation of the specifics given in Revelation 16 when God poured out seven bowls at the end of the seven-year tribulation. And on the seventh bowl in Revelation 16, 19, it says this. Uh, God poured out the seventh bowl, verse 17, and then verse 19 says, a consequence was, and the great city was split into three parts, and the cities, the cities of the nations fell. We're going to see that. And Babylon the Great was remembered before God. He was, uh, God is going to judge Babylon. That is part of the seventh bowl. God judges Babylon, the Babylon of the future. So what's going to happen? Maybe there's half a million people living in Babylon right now over in Iraq, uh, but the population is going to continue to increase and grow over time. It could be months, it could be years, it could be decades, it could be centuries for all we know. We don't know the timing, but at some point, uh, Babylon over in Iraq is going to grow once again and become the greatest city on planet Earth. And all the world is going to look to Babylon and bend the knee as though they would to Mecca. And the Antichrist is going to rule from Babylon. He's going to control the entire world. And he's going to rule the world through a universal religion, through a universal economic system, and through a universal political system. And so what you have in the seventh bold judgment of God is God is judging all three of those things that are at the heart of the empire of the future Antichrist. And God is going to crush all three. The religious system, the economic system, and the political system. God already showed us how he's going to judge the religious system in Revelation 17. Then the theme in Revelation 18 is how God is going to bring down the economic system of the future Babylon that rules over the world. And then in chapter 19, we're going to see how God brings down the political system itself, the Antichrist and his henchman, the false prophet. So it's expanding further truth and giving us more detail of what God was talking about in Revelation 16 in the seventh bowl. So let's go ahead and look at it. Babylon's rise and fall. The religious system fell in 17 and now the economic system is going to fall in chapter 18 Uh, so i call this the fall of babylon the great three points i want to look at here the first one is in the first 10 verses and this is the cause of babylon's fall the reason that this great city unparalleled in all of history unprecedented think of the greatest city city you can right now on planet earth and think of the greatest cities and empires you can throughout human history Uh, the future babylon will shadow all of those in terms of its import and universal impact and affluence and everything else. But it's going down. And there's a cause that's very specific. The cause of Babylon's fall is rampant immorality and materialism. Rampant immorality and materialism. According to verses 1 through 10. So let's listen to the words of God and His judgment that is coming on this future world empire run by the Antichrist. Uh, Verse 1 of chapter 18 says, After these things, the vision of 17, John says, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. This is a heavenly angel with the authority delegated from God. The earth was illumined with His glory. He's a holy angel, bright. Verse 2, the angel cried out with a mighty voice, authoritatively, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. This is a prophecy. And it is emphatic. 
It's emphatic because it's repeated two times. Fallen, fallen. It's emphatic because it's put at the beginning of the sentence. Fallen, fallen. It's emphatic because the tense that is used in the Greek text. Fallen, fallen. It is assured. It is guaranteed. This is going to happen. This is not fiction. This is not allegory. This is not history. This is sure future prophecy. God is decreeing in the future this great empire is going down. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Once and for all, the Old Testament predicted that Babylon would be totally decimated. That has not happened yet. It must be fulfilled. Isaiah 14 and so many other passages, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all predicted that Babylon would be totally eradicated, decimated, annihilated. That hasn't happened yet, but it's going to. And here is the prophetic fulfillment. So Babylon is going down. The Antichrist is going down. His headquarters are going down. His religious system, his economic system, all of it. And Babylon, she has become a dwelling place of demons. So when it happens at the end of the tribulation and it's judged by God, it's just going to go up in flames. It's going to be a conflagration like never seen before. It's going to dwarf what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. And she was be, uh, she's become a dwelling place. Uh, so then it's beca- going to become annihilated and then demons are literally going to congregate and fill that place, the void that is left behind of the, the demolition that's coming from God. Uh, and she, Babylon, has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit. Those are demons. And a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. Birds of prey. Unclean birds coming to eat the carcasses of dead things. Very picturesque and graphic, but it's true. Verse 3, for all the nations. Well, what was their crime? Babylon as a city, as a headquarters, and the Antichrist as a king. Well, for all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality. So it was an immoral city. It will be an immoral city. Totally immoral. And then I said last week, this word immorality, which is used three times in the first ten verses, immorality, it's the word porneia, which means pornography. It's just a very broad term. It can refer to sexual immorality, but it's not always just sexual. It's just being immoral, being unethical, being a liar, being a deceiver, being a cheat. So it's a big umbrella term. It incorporates all of that. Without conscience, a seared conscience, really. And so this city is going to be run by people who have a seared conscience. Isn't that kind of scary? But you usually want your, you want your people who have the authority and power to be moral people and ethical people and fair people and safe people. Yet this city is going to be run by people who have a seared, twisted, perverted, satanically dominated conscience. That is frightening. So it's, it's just run and consumed by immorality. And the kings of the earth, uh, all the kings and rulers, the who's who of planet earth at that time are all going to join in and be a part of this and assisting and aiding and bowing the knee to its power in the Antichrist. And the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her. These are specific acts of sexual immorality and other kinds of immorality. And the merchants of the earth, these are the movers and shakers of the world who make the money, who buy and sell in the future. Merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. So this city is going to be run by sensuality or wantonness or profligate greed. Verse 4, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you may not participate in her sins and that you may not receive of her plague. So this tells us at the end of the tribulation, they're actually going to be believers. People will be saved during the tribulation. It's a question I hear sometimes. Will people have an opportunity to get saved during the seven-year tribulation? Absolutely. Uh, there's 144,000 witnesses. There's the angel that God sent to preach the eternal gospel from the heavens. So the message will continue to go out. Most will reject. Some will believe. Narrow is the gate of those who believe. And they will be saved. And some people are actually going to be saved right there in the heart of this immorality in Babylon. 
Some of them will be caught up. Probably some of them are going to have a dramatic salvation and they used to be a part of it and perpetuated it. And we're benefiting from it and all of its wealth and luxury. And they'll get saved. And some of them might still have kind of a hangover from being attached to it emotionally and by virtue of their indwelling sin. And there might be some allegiance or loyalty that they're trying to be steered away from or they're entangled and it's hard to be pulled away. Christians experience this as a reality. We battle with sin. And so God is trying to call His own out of this city. Get away. It's like God calling out, get away from Sodom and Gomorrah. Run. Lot, get out. It's going down. It's going to be burned. Run. And so that's what God is doing here. He is a God of grace. He is a God of mercy. He's calling for people once again to be saved. Get away from the sin. Get away from where the judgment is going to come. So God gives warning. These plagues are coming full force once and for all. Verse 5, For her sins of the city have piled up or have been stacked up like brick upon brick. This is an image coming from the Tower of Babel. It has accumulated sin and so many of them, it was like this pile of sins that actually reached the heaven and pushed the ceiling of heaven up. That's how much the sin has grown and been accumulated. Her sins have piled up as high as heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. God must punish sin. He's a holy God. And He's going to. Some people are thinking, boy, that's why is God so angry? Boy, that's kind of scary. Well, no, because God is a holy God. God is a loving God. God is a holy God. This is the true character of the good God of the universe. He must be a just God, and He is. Verse 6, He gives a decree, God does, and He says, pay her back. Pay her back. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. You will reap what you sow, and Babylon is going to reap with the judgment of God. Pay her back even as she has paid. And Babylon... Uh, torture will torture people in the future will torture believers all over the world uh, will be bloodthirsty like no other regime and as a result God is going to pay her back the same eye for eye tooth for tooth that's the kind of judgment that's going to come on this future city and give her, verse 6 goes on pay her back and give back to her double according to her deeds and the cup which she has mixed mixed twice as much for her verse 7 to the degree that she glorified herself so the sin of Babylon in the future I said, was immorality and materialism. We're going to see that. But even more so than that, what binds it all together is just this vicious pride. This absolute self-centered, egocentric approach to life. No need for God. That's verse 7. This city glorified herself. In other words, this city did not give glory to God. There was no recognition to God the Creator. And like I said, that's one of the worst sins. That's what brought Nebuchadnezzar to his knees, right? That's what brought the Tower of Babel down. They said, we shall build... Uh, a temple to the heavens. They were talking about themselves. That is pride and God brought it down. I think of Acts chapter 12. Herod glorifies himself. Remember when Herod, the wicked guy, threw a party for himself and he invited everybody to come and celebrate how great he was and worship me and he gives him a song and a little ditty to sing about to praise him, to worship him. And right there on the spot, God struck him dead because of his pride and his self-glorification. And he fell over dead, boom, was eaten by worms. So this is a sin that's repeated all throughout history by many people, but humans don't learn the lesson. And here is the epitome and the fulfillment of this self-arrogant pride in Babylon. Verse 7, Babylon glorified herself and lived sensuously to the same degree, give her torment and mourning. For Babylon, she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, I am not a widow, and will never see mourning. That's kind of like how Hitler talked. He thought he was going to reign for a thousand years. He was so deluded. People are like this. Power corrupts. Verse 8, For this reason, in one day, her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. That's what it said in chapter 17 as well, that Babylon was going down by burning with fire. 
uh, Revelation 17, 16. That is confirmed once again here. Burned with fire. That's how it's going down. Like Sodom and Gomorrah. For the Lord God who judges her is strong. So God is the one that's going to bring about her judgment. He's probably going to use uh, human instruments to do it. To destroy the city. No doubt. God does that. He used human instruments to accomplish his purposes as the sovereign God. And the kings of the earth, verse 9, who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her in Babylon, they will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning. So the city's going to be decimated. It's going to be decimated quickly. It's not going to be a gradual decline. Some people say the United States, after 230 plus years, is in a, has been in a gradual decline little by little over decades and decades and decades. And so there's this slow, perpetual, incremental fall that is taking decades and decades and even centuries. That is not going to be true of Babylon. It is going to happen suddenly, quickly, immediately. And that's the terminology in verse 8, in one day. It even gets more specific uh, further on. We'll see 11 through 19 where it says, verse 17, it's going to happen in one hour. Verse 19 also says it's going to happen in one hour. It means immediately, suddenly. Uh, it's going to come upon like a thief in the night in terms of God's judgment. And it's going to be burned by God. Verse 10, uh, and standing at a distance are the kings of the earth Notice they're not there. They are the kings from all around the world who had vested interest in this city. That's where all their money was and their loot and their power and their authority. And they're looking at it from a distance. And they're, maybe they're watching it on the news. Wow, our headquarters is, wow, there goes all of our money and our investments. What are we going to do now? And they're weeping and wailing, not because of the loss of human life, but because of their riches. So they're self-centered even in their weeping over what's happening and their stability and security that comes from their ill-gotten wealth. Verse 10, they're standing at a distance because of the fear. Notice they have fear of her torment saying, whoa, whoa, the great city Babylon, the strong city for in one hour your judgment has come. They're fear because they thought Babylon was the great city that nobody could stand against Babylon and boom, it has gone down. And if Babylon can go down suddenly, then anything can. That's their fear. So their, their sin is immorality and materialism, rampant immaterialism, the pursuit of Wealth, money, possessions, making money. And that's one of the defining things about this future city or empire. It's going to be the most luxurious, wealthy city and empire in the history of the world. And there have been a lot of wealthy dictators. There's a lot of wealthy dictators right now hoarding and piling up masses of riches and money. And they get it in illegitimate ways by literally taking people's lives if they have to. And coercion and manipulation and and so this is going to, this is what it's going to be like, the way this empire is run. Totally corrupt to the core. In total pursuit of self-satisfaction and wealth and luxury. But it's going down because God decreed it to be so. So the cause of Babylon's fall, rampant immorality and materialism. Uh, number two, the casualties of Babylon's fall. Who's going to be hurt by this? Well, the kings of the earth, we saw, because they have a vested interest in all this. But specifically in 1119, it's the merchants of the earth that are going to be hurt by this. And that's the theme of 11 through 19, the merchants of the earth. Verse 11, and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over Babylon's destruction because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Uh, the word for merchant, it's a compound Greek word. It's actually where we get the word emporium, because that's the Greek word, emporium. And it means the one on a journey to conduct business. So this has to do with uh, business interchange, buying, selling, making a profit. That is the main thing. But these merchants of the earth, they are illegitimate. They are not honest businessmen. They are totally dishonest, selfish, shrewd, conniving, 
and very, very profitable. And they've been making, they've been amassing all kinds of money and income. And they're buying and selling. They're dictating the terms of everything. And here, uh, Babylon is devastated. In verse 11, it says, and now they're mourning and weeping because there's no buying and selling going on anymore. This is the height of irony because these are the ones early on in the tribulation or at the midpoint where they said, if you don't take the mark of the beast, you can't buy or sell. So they limited buying and selling. At one point, now they're weeping because there's no more buying and selling. This is God with His poetic justice judging them. You don't want buying and selling? From those who have faithful allegiance to Jesus, I'll give you no buying and selling. There will be none. And it happens here. So the casualties of Babylon's fall are the merchants of the earth. Well, what's, what were they buying and selling and how were they making all of their money? Verse 12 through 14 tells us exactly in the future what's going to be bought and sold as precious commodities in the world. This was written 2,000 years ago. If you read through the list, nothing has changed. Everything in here is still valuable to humans. They still cherish this and deal with this commodity, these commodities and protect them and they are still valuable in terms of uh, their money and wealth and what people pursue after. Just look at them, verses 12 and 13. The things that they were making money with. Cargoes of gold. There it is, top of the list. What is it, almost $2,000 an ounce now? Invest in gold, they say. Even more so in the future. Cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet. Every kind of citron wood, valuable wood that is rare and precious. Every article of ivory, which is still precious today. Every article made from very costly wood, bronze, Iron and marble, those are all valuable today still. And they're going to be at the heart of the market in terms of demand in the future. Verse 13, And cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and cargoes of horses and chariots and human bodies, even human lives as slaves. This is going to be part of the market. Slavery will not be eradicated. Because humans are sinful. Slavery has nothing to do with race. It has to do with the sinful human heart. And it will be at its all-time high in the future. But it will be put to an end, praise God, just before the millennium. If you were listening very carefully in 13 and 14, I said and 28 times. I don't know if you picked up on that. Uh, because that's what John uses, uh, the conjunction 28 times. Listing very graphically what it's going to be like. This is true. This is not just... Uh, fiction. Verse 14 goes on in the fruit and he's talking to the merchants and the fruit you long for has gone from you. Long for what you lusted for, what you desired for. What they lusted for and desired for was human or material possessions. And that's a good question for us as Christians. What is our greatest desire? What are the desires of our heart? Is it our love for God, Jesus Christ, His Word, forgiveness of sin, going to heaven, pleasing Christ, being with the saints? Or... Are your desires caught up in the things of this world? The latest great movie that's coming out, the coolest, greatest, latest song that's coming out, uh, the greatest things that are being advertised on television in terms of the possessions and the wealth of the world. So this is a good check for us to monitor what is the passion and desire of our heart. For the merchants of the earth, it was all material things that fade away. You can't put your trust in money, can you? Money, money. according to the book of Proverbs, it's a great proverb written 3,000 years ago, money grows wings and flies away. I have personal friends who have lost millions, millions. I remember when I moved here in the Silicon Valley 10 years ago, somebody was telling me their testimony. So when I got here, 
Not long after I got here, maybe it was my fault that caused the boom here in, or the, the bust here in uh, Silicon Valley, because not long after I moved here, there was 9-11 coupled with the, market, the housing market that bombed out, and everything went belly up, and there were people I knew who were saints and believers who said literally they had lost millions. One guy, $12 million in the bank, in his pocket, gone. It's amazing. And I was just thinking of Proverbs. Yeah, don't put your trust in security and wealth. It grows wings and flies away. God knows what he's talking about. So God is telling them, you put your trust in the wrong thing. You're trying to find security in the wrong thing. On sand instead of the solid rock of Jesus Christ. The merchants at verse 15 of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning. And again, they're weeping and mourning the loss of their business. They are in depression because of an economic depression. Some of us can relate to that, can't we? This is an economic depression like never before. But it's real. It's going to affect the whole world. And they're weeping. Verse 16, they're saying, Woe, woe, the great city. She who was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste for every and every shipmate and ev- or shipmaster, that's uh, the pilot of a ship, every passenger and sailor. Because a lot of the business that's going to be done is going to be done on the water and from the sea in the Euphrates River. And that's how they're going to be doing conducting a lot of business. And as many as make their living by the sea, they stood at a distance and they were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, what city is like the great city? So much for the great city, it's gone. We thought it was uh, going to last forever. And some people think that about their country or their king or their a man. People think that about the United States. It's the superpower of planet Earth. The United States is not going to last forever. We know that. You look in future prophecy and you're scratching your head. Well, where's the United States in all this? I don't see it. Because it's not there. Same is true of Babylon. People thought, it can't go down. But it does. Verse 19. And they threw dust on their heads. They still do this in the Middle East when they're weeping and mourning and throwing. They tear their garments. And they get down on their knees and they throw dust on their head as a way of mourning and weeping. This is going to go on in the future. That's why this is in the Middle East. This is what they do. This is how they express their emotion and sorrow. Very physical. Loud, weeping and wailing. Very public. And for a prolonged period of time, throwing dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning, saying, Whoa, whoa, the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour, suddenly, she has been laid waste. Wow. God's fulfilling His promise. He said He was going to wipe them out. Isaiah 14, God predicted He's going to wipe Babylon out. This is fulfilled prophecy. So let's go on. We had the cause of Babylon's fall, the casualties of Babylon's fall, and then finally, number three, the consequences of Babylon's fall. At least some of the consequences. We've seen some already. 20 to 24. Consequences are going to be complete devastation and ruin because this was specifically prophesied in the Old Testament. Isaiah 14, many other passages. Uh, Ezekiel, Jeremiah said that Babylon would be totally decimated, eradicated, wiped out forever. That has not happened yet. There's only been partial judgments throughout history at different times. It is yet future. It's going to happen. Complete ruin to this city. And that's 20 to 24. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Can you imagine that? Wow. Rejoice? you got everybody on planet Earth is weeping and mourning. And here's God up in heaven saying rejoice. Praise God. Scripture is fulfilled. The righteous saints are vindicated. God is a just judge. God must punish sin. It is good for God to do justice for the unrepentant. That's why it's time to celebrate. 
So this is a call, this is a command for those who are in heaven at that time to rejoice over what God the Judge and God the Creator is doing rightfully so. This helps inform us of having a proper view of who God and His character. Rejoice over her. Rejoice over Babylon. Rejoice over the judgment that God brings to this horrible city that for seven years has slaughtered believers who profess Jesus. That's their main sin. They've rejected Christ and God and truth. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints. These are saints in heaven. And apostles, these are the apostles of Jesus up in heaven. Eleven probably out of the twelve who were murdered by unbelievers for their faith. And prophets rejoice. These are New Testament prophets, many of whom also were murdered for their faith because God has pronounced judgment for you. This is just judgment. Verse 21, And a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone. Now he's acting like one of the prophets, this angel is, because in the Old Testament, the prophets, to illustrate a truth, many times did physical things for all to see. Sometimes they were weird and bizarre whether it was walking around almost practically just about naked, like one of the prophets did, to make a point, to uh, building a, not a Lego set, but like a uh, taking a bunch of mud bricks and playing in the mud and making mud soldiers and a mud fortress and all that and then start throwing rocks at it like you're seven years old and <laughs> pretend you're having a... Well, that's what they did, the prophets. Ezekiel, playing in the mud. Very spiritual. So they have these graphic... Uh, New Testament prophet, uh, what's his name? Uh, John the Baptist, right? Walking around in camel's hair and he kind of stunk and didn't take showers and hair flopping all over the place and eating locusts. And, well, that's weird. In a camel's belt, you're a weird looking dude. He was a prophet of God. He was making a point. He was illustrating something and that's what's going on here with this angel. Here's his illustration. He takes up this huge, massive stone, probably weighing five to 10,000 pounds. It was a millstone, huge, massive thing. Takes it, he throws it into the sea as an illustration, saying, Thus will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. And the point is it's going to be sudden destruction. Sudden, complete, devastating destruction from God from heaven. It's the illustration. It is coming. It is certain. Wow. Verse 22. And here are some of the consequences that's going to happen as a, re as a result of God judging this city. All the things that were going on that was... Vibrant about life at the hub of Babylon are now destroyed and eradicated. Well, what are those things? Well, there's the entertainment industry is going down. Think about the entertainment industry in just here in America and the world and how influential it is. The entertainment industry, Hollywood. Think about how influential Hollywood is. All the money, all the influence, how they affect culture, how we think, how youth things. They dictate what we wear, what we should like, what our preferences are, our ethics, everything. That is the entertainment industry. It is huge and it's more than Hollywood. It's the music industry, all of that stuff. Incredibly influential in society. Well, it will also be true in the future kingdom of Babylon. Nothing changes. The entertainment industry will be one of the most influential movements in the future world empire, but it's going down. Verse 22, in the sound of harpists and musicians. See, music. Entertainment, flute players and trumpeters will not be hurting you any longer. No more music. It's going down. <clears throat> so the entertainment industry is going to be taken out. No craftsman of any craft will be found in you any longer. Craftsmen. So the business industry is going down in Babylon. Uh, it goes on, and the sound of a mill will, no, will not be hurting you any longer. So that's also a part of the business industry among the regular people. So the entertainment industry, wiped out. The business industry, wiped out. 
uh, goes on the next verse 23 and the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer what's that that's the public service and public utilities they're all wiped out no electricity no cell phone no cell can you imagine living without your cell phone not being able to text is that possible i don't want to ask for a show of hands of those who have actually texted during my sermon because i would my feelings would be hurt But anyway, that's the whole point. The sound uh, or the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer. That's the power they had. That's what gave light at night. That's the public service company. Entertainment industry, gone. Business industry, gone. Public services, gone. And then it hits real, really at home. The voice of the bridegroom and the bride. This is just normal daily life of family living. Interaction, social interaction, social intercourse will not be hurting you any longer. Gone. Social life, history. For your merchants were the great men of the earth because of all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. Verse 23, the word for sorcery is actually the word pharmakeia, where we get pharmacy from. Drugs. Drugs and also black magic. Sorcery. Unbelievable. Verse 24. And the conclusion, and in her was found the blood of... So here's her main sin. It's not just immorality and sensuality and arrogance and pride. What really angered God was the persecution and the murder of His blessed people, His dear saints, who were commissioned with go out and preach the gospel, the good news, to go give the world good news that you can be saved from all of your sins and know God personally and spend eternity with Him and know Him eternally right now, the blessed God of the universe. That is good news, and the world, for the most part, wants nothing to do with it. Not only that, they don't want anything to do with it, they reject the messenger, they kill the saints all throughout the tribulation. This angers God. Verse 24, in, in her, in Babylon, was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. That's the crescendo of the reason for the judgment. Well, chapter 18 is a heavy chapter, isn't it? The, you know what the good news is? This is yet future. And I, I, th- I don't think I'm going to be around as a believer, as a Christian. I believe I will be raptured according to Scripture, according to Revelation 3.10. God will spare me and you as a Christian from that very time period on planet Earth. That's the good news. God is a good God, always wooing, calling out to sinners. One last chance to be saved. It doesn't have to be that way. Believe, repent, turn to me. Uh, But I just want to close with these practical maybe thoughts or applications that we can even glean from this very dark chapter of Revelation 18. Also, the good news is after chapter 18 is chapter 19. Jesus is coming. That's good. Uh, But here's some practical reminders that I thought about for myself that maybe they would help you as well. Um, Good reminders. Bad stuff happens because of sin. That's just reality. We need to be realists about the world we live in, don't we? Sinners live in the world. Sinners live in your household. Sinners go to this church. And the byproduct of sin is ugly, isn't it? Uh, Another reminder, human society is getting worse. It's not getting better. So if... You hear people on TV and whatever else saying uh, the next utopia is coming up and we can make everything better. No, you can't. It's getting worse because we know that because Scripture says that. It's waxing worse and worse, says the book of Timothy. Um, Another thing, God is holy and must judge sin. So he does that here. He's just acting like who he is, his perfect holy character. It's a good thing when God judges sin when he does. By the way, God is the only one that is allowed to to, uh, fulfill the law of retaliation. We're not allowed to do that. God does. And we do it only when he tells us to. Excuse me. Uh, another reminder, don't put your trust in or your security in money or human or material possessions, right? Can't do that. It's fleeting. Um, also, don't be proud. Give God the glory in all things. Give God the glory in all things. 
Don't be like Achan who was mistaken and ended up bacon. Remember that? Because he didn't give God the glory. Give God the glory and repent. And he did repent and then he got killed. That was kind of sad. But anyway. But don't be proud. Give God the glory in all things. Don't let your own lips praise you, but let somebody else. So a little mantra I've been repeating to my sons lately about when they go play athletic games is, play hard, have fun, give God the glory. Amen. And then finally, this is just a great reminder that God is sovereign and totally in control. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Romans 8.28 is always our promise that the Christian can cling to. For God works all things together for good, for those who love Him and know Him. That's the great blessing that Christians get to, to live with. So we look forward to Jesus coming in Revelation 19. And until then, let's go ahead and pray and commit our day to the Lord and prepare our hearts for benevolence and one last song. Uh, Father, we do thank you for our time together, for a time of worship. Thank you for encouraging our hearts earlier through song and just great words to go with good music that we know pleases you. You're a musical God and you want the saints to sing and praise you. Thank you also for the privilege to come after a busy week or maybe a trying week to interact with fellow believers. And your word says that we are to encourage one another and stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And I just pray that people would leave filled from their interaction with fellow saints. Bless our fellowship. And also thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for not hiding the truth from us or... And thank you for revealing reality, even if it's it's bad reality or sinful reality. But uh, the comforting thing, God, is, is that you are totally in control of all things. We thank you that you're sovereign, King of kings, Lord of lords, a just God, but also a loving, saving God. And God, remember, or, uh, always help us to remember to give you glory in all things. Um, you're the only one that deserves the glory. May we not rob, rob you of that. Uh, we thank you. Go before us. Uh, fill us with your spirit as we commit our time to you. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.